3: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I've been one of my friends. I'm just try to make some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. The stock market is the new sports We're experiencing a whole new set of binary games that start at 9.30 and end at 4. Though sometimes they go into extra innings. But at least we've got some sports. It just happens to be in the form of the stock market. Have the sports gamblers descended on the market en masse because they have nothing better to do, nothing else to do? Does that explain the recent action, including today, when the Dow gained 131 points as uh climbed 0.43%, Nasdaq jumped 0.74%, but be careful. There were some late-day reversals. Or is it just novice investors pouring money into the same members of the new high list based on a winner's win philosophy? Hey, maybe it's driven by foreign buyers crowding their momentum stocks. Honestly, at this point, it could be all three. And the problem with these constituencies is they make things a little more dangerous for the rest of us. How do I know this? I made it up? No. Let me. I, well, first, I did some cribbing off of some fa- first-class work by my friend David Costin, the master of research at Goldman Sachs. In his must-read U.S. weekly Kickstart, he talks about how foreign investors were the largest net buyers of U.S. stocks in the first quarter. He also notes that there's been a surge in retail trading. Retail meaning, like, regular people. Put it all together, and there's a lot of money flowing into stocks. We're seeing an equity allocation of 44% right now, up from 40% at the beginning of this quarter. And Kostin points out that the real money is probably higher. Higher than that, because his estimates don't fully account for the pickup in retail inter- investing activity. Now, these three constituencies—foreigners, retail active investors, traders, and equity mutual funds—typically of the momentum variety—keep pushing the market higher. And while each group still has plenty of firepower, we look; you go to 70%. I don't know, certainly enough to keep the rally going. Historically, this is not a great base to come in on this level. When you get tons of money coming in from foreign investors, retail speculators, and equity mutual funds that are momentum players, not index funds, but actively manage momentum fund managers, it can produce a toxic combination. Look, I am not trying to be a killjoy. Nor am I calling a top. I'm simply acknowledging the history. And you have to understand that history is not now on the the side of the momentum buyers because it's later than you think. Why not? Well, the problem is timing. This morning, I saw a beautiful tweet from a viewer who made a ton of money in a short period of time by watching Mad Money. I didn't hesitate. I told her to take some money off the table right now. You never want to let your gains turn into losses. But these momentum chasers rarely display that kind of discipline because, well, they're all in at all times. Consider the investing style of these three groups and question yourself whether you're one part of them. Okay. first, there's foreign investors. They're notorious for coming in near the end of the move because they're always searching for the hottest markets in the world. Right now, we have a hot one. That's why this contingent of overseas money has been involved in some of the greatest bubbles of all time. I can remember in 1987 when stocks soared into the stratosphere right into the run-up to Black Monday. At that point, Japan reigned supreme in the world's markets. They had a 45% share of the market. U.S. only represented 33. We're more than half now there, just high single digits. Again, near the end of the 80s, these Japanese buyers were notorious for choosing stocks to take up before each session, allowing insiders to get in ahead of the retail surge. And they decided to go into the United States in a big way. They controlled the opening by the same handful of stocks, no matter the price. They were responsible for a big chunk of the run-up going into the great crash of 87. At its peak, that market was valued at 29 times earnings, the highest they've ever witnessed, and the foreigners did not care. The Japanese buyers seemed to have no price sensitivity whatsoever. Lots of firms were long stocks, and they tried to develop a stop-out system called portfolio insurance, using futures to hedge against potential stock declines. Then the portfolio insurance completely imploded. Fallout crushed the stock market and gave us that 22% decline in a single day. What happened next? Well, these Japanese buyers were, were always momentum traders. And if the crash, there was no momentum to be had. So they sold stocks at the worst possible time. Hey, listen, once the ball starts coming down, it doesn't start just automatically start coming up. It doesn't work like that. These people were the ultimate buy high, sell low investors. So I don't love it when I see lots of foreign money crowding into this market. I hate it. This time it's coming from Europe. doesn't matter where it's coming from. Second group, the aggressive mutual fund managers. The professionals love to blame regular individual investors like you for the dot-com bubble. But they uh, and you play a role. But honestly, the big moves in the dot-com period came from portfolio managers who just kept buying the same stocks because they got huge amounts of money over the transom every day. They didn't know what to do with it, and they loved their stocks. They had to put it to work, so they doubled down on what they already owned. These money managers are the ones who keep buying Apple, which, you know, I, I love. But it's fueling the stock's astounding 72% run from the March lows, which, by the way, has accounted for more than 12% of this rally. The, the ones who keep bidding up uh, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, Facebook, they are enamored of Momentum. And they justify their purchases by focusing on the earnings in the out years, meaning, say, 2024. Sometimes they think they fool themselves into buying these stocks, reacting to rampant price target boosts from the analyst community. Now, in a normal market, something like Apple would run up into a developer's conference like it had yesterday and then immediately sell off on the news. That's what's happened. Now, I don't like that. I like what happened today. Big run. But that's how almost it's always been, unless there's been some major revelation, which there wasn't. There was nothing huge. Yet Apple stock keeps surging because these money managers won't stop buying it. I don't like that. No discipline. Unfortunately, lots of regular people who want big returns are plowing their money into these momentum oriented mutual funds. My advice, be careful. These guys never know when to quit. A lot of them own the COVID-19 stocks. By the way, the uh, Kramer COVID, those, a lot of those reversed at the end of the day today. So be careful. They'll probably be, They could be down tomorrow. Finally, the third group is retail traders, and this is the one that's despised by most of the old people who are in this business. These people do seem to be transplants from the world of sports betting. They're looking for a binary winner or loser at the end of the day. Now, my buddy David Costin that's David Costin, not David Portland. My buddy David Costin has provided us with a lot of buddies named David with a list of their favorites. They like Penn National, the casino Cup, its owns a controlling stake in barstool sports. We had him on last night. Coincidence? They like Moderna, which leads the race for a COVID vaccine. Tesla, which needs no introduction. Royal Caribbean up nicely today. One of the big three cruise lines that can't actually cruise. Snap, low dollar stock, right? Pairing of Snapchat. MGM Resorts, lowest dollar casino stock. Uh, Spirit Airways, lowest dollar airline stock. Norwegian Cruise, lowest dollar cruise stock other than Carnival. GoPro, lowest dollar, who cares? And Marathon, lowest dollar oil company uh, that is still solvent. This is a curious amalgam of lowest dollar stocks that tend to make big intraday moves along with airlines and cruise lines textbook recovery plays. But let's not ignore the obvious. These are the stocks that David Portnoy rules over. In his day trade guys at Barstool. He's got a huge investment in Penn National, Remember member of their partners. He's active in the airlines and cruises. He's very funny about it if you follow him on Twitter. Now, the guy has a gigantic following. He's moving these stocks. His people want action. He's giving to them in spades. My view... I'll save it for tomorrow. Now, of course, there are plenty of other names that keep being bid up by all three groups, re, uh, retail, the Europeans, and the mutual funds. Most of the Kramer COVID-19 index, for example. These stocks thrive in an environment where people are stuck working at home via the Internet, and they keep being swept up in the buying, which is met by few sellers. Because you know what? Like in 1987, they know the momentum buyers will be back again tomorrow, so why sell today? That's a, that's a terrible philosophy, believe me. It works till it doesn't. I can't do anything about the European buyers. and The professional mutual fund managers think I'm dead wrong to try to teach rookies. But I hope I can reach the new home gamers who come in during this incredible run. Here's my advice. Take some of your winnings and invest them into high-quality defensive stocks with sizable dividends, ideally the next time we get a pullback. I know they're boring. I don't care. I'm not looking for action. The bottom line, as my late mother we always say, sometimes after some big wins and we used to go to the ponies and the casinos, it's best to walk out of the racetrack or the casino and go buy yourself one darn beautiful cashmere sweater. So please, if you've got big gains right now, ring the register on part of your position and go shopping for something a little more lasting. Let's go to Joseph in Virginia. Joseph. Hey, Jim, how you doing? This
4: is Joe from Virginia. Good,
3: good to have you. you. What's going on? With dining opening back
4: up right now, is Cracker a good uh, place to be. I should have
3: been pharmaceuticals and. Uh, well, I mean, low gasoline prices Let me tell you about the problem with when you see these restaurants open. They take out half the tables because of, uh, of social distancing. It's called social loss making. And you don't want to be in that restaurant business. You want to be in Chipotle because they have drive through lanes. Social loss making is a bad thing. Conrad. I mean, it's good for your health. Conrad in Florida. Conrad.
1: Hi, Jim. From one B&B owner to another, I want to
3: say I feel your pain. Um, Do you know how how bad that business is right now? I mean, it's unbelievable. It's picking up down here, thankfully. Oh, well, you are one lucky guy. Let's go to work.
1: I was going to say we combat veterans. We like our guns and ammo, both physical and financial. I've got the physical covered. I'd like your take on the financial. Two companies about the same size. Which is the better buy? RGR?
4: or SWBI.
3: Okay, I I typically do not recommend gun stocks, but I will tell you that I think Sturm Ruger's got a very good balance sheet. Um, And by the way, I'm not anti-gun or pro-gun. It's just it's not been uh, much that we talk about. Let's go to Adrian in California. Adrian.
4: Hey, Jim. First time caller here. Okay, What are your thoughts on going long on Purple Innovation Inc? Right now, they're in the stages of ramping up production to meet a surge of demand. What are your thoughts?
3: I don't like that business one bit, Um, not one bit. And uh, this mattress and bedding, there's too many in the area, and I'm not there. I'm not going to be on board on that situation. It's just not my style. All right, guys, look at this. This is a list of momentum, okay? I like value. And by the way, even though it's low price, it does not mean it is value. All right. We're seeing three kinds of investors in this market. Uh, for you, the home gamer, I think it's time to think about taking some stuff off the table. No, I'm not calling it top. There's a lot of money coming in the market. But holy cow. I mean, you see the reversal at the end of the day, you see the momentum tracks everywhere. Oh man, tonight, two worrisome signs that have the potential to signal the party is almost over for the market. I'll reveal them just ahead. Then looking for some fireworks ahead of the July 4th holiday. I might have spotted some for you when tonight's off the charts. This is again why I'm not that negative. I just want to be prudent. I mean, the market collapsed earlier this year. One of the groups that was hit the hardest was the retail cohort. But there could be some plays worth considering the beaten down sector. I'm going to tease you and let you find out. Stay with Kramer.
1: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer, hashtag mad tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnBC.com.
0: Take your business further with a smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card.
5: NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving.
3: This rally is starting to really get under my skin. All right, it's not a major irritation that would make me want to sell everything. Sell, sell, sell. <gasps> Uh, then you miss out on fabulous runs like in Dell and VMware tonight on an important restructuring, two of new stocks you know I like. Now, it's more like a kind of a series of minor, minor annoyances right now that make me feel like people are beginning to get reckless. Let's call them peeves, okay? Individually, none of them would be a big deal, but right now there are so many that I am, yes, getting peeved. First Peef, hardly a day goes by without some analysts raising their price target for a handful of hot stocks. Take Square and PayPal, a pair of payment technology plays that I, I like so much that you've heard me say I like them a million times. They're both benefiting from the pandemic. But PayPal is now up 60% for the year, 6 to the point where it's valued at $202 billion. Square surged 67% with a $46 billion market cap. Now, if you called into the lightning round and asked me about these companies, i tell you they're the best breed in the world. Nothing wrong with them. But if I had more time, I'd also explain that I worry when I see their stocks going up and up and up on a series of price target boosts. They're not rallying on any news related to earnings or even sales. In reality, when Square reported last month, their gross payment volume, which is so important, came in weaker than expected. And while they gave you a small revenue beat, they missed the earnings estimates by a mile. Plus, the company pulled the guidance. Yet since then, the stocks run from 68 to 104. Again, I love Square, but I'd be lying if I said that move didn't make me uncomfortable. As for PayPal, I've been pounding the table on this one for ages, probably more than anyone other than Dan Schulman, the CEO. However, or maybe reigning the CFO. However, I'm also conscious that the last time PayPal reported, they delivered an across-the-board disappointment. They missed on volume, missed on revenues, and totally whiffed on earnings. They made 66 cents Street thought 75. Just like Square, they pulled their guidance. It was not a good quarter. But because I believe in a long-term story, I said, be patient. I explained that you had to view the pullback as a buying opportunity. Since then, PayPal surged from 128 to 172. So then what's the problem? I recommend the stock. It's on fire. What the heck am I complaining about? I did my job. Simple. It worries me when stocks keep running on no new news. I expect the analysts who haven't yet lifted the price target will concoct some new tailwind and the buyers will pile in again on the same estimates. When I see people paying more and more for the same set of earnings or sales, it gets my hackles up. There are times when it makes sense, but what we're seeing here feels to me like a little greater fool theory. The buyers just assume someone else will take it off their hands at even higher levels, and it's been working endlessly. This kind of what is known as multiple expansion never ends well unless there's a takeover bid, and that can happen, or a shocking acceleration in earnings, like you saw, for instance, with Zoom. So I watch helplessly as these stocks are bid up day after day on nothing substantive, and I think, oh, man, it, it, it's, people are going to get hurt. Look, I'm thrilled that so many new traders are coming to the market. Stocks are an incredible wealth generator when you got the right approach. That's why I want to convert these traders into investors, because chasing momentum is not the right approach. Unfortunately, there's still tons of newly minted momentum traders out there, and it's not just the price target boost chasers. These novices are also drawn to low-dollar amount stocks that often belong to failing enterprises. To me, that's crazy. Stocks don't trade down to the single digits for no reason. In the old days, low-dollar stocks made sense, but now we have fractional shares. So there's nothing stopping you from taking a significant position in, in an Amazon or an Apple with, with, with Facebook with a fractional share. As long as these momentum traders keep crowding into low quality, single digit stocks that are easily manipulated higher with the aid of social media. Consider me concerned. Price target boosts and promoters two worrisome signs. You get enough of them and we are most likely and we're not there yet. Most likely closer to when the party is almost over. Stick with Craig. In a market that's as confused as it is confusing, I want to take a new approach. As I've told you repeatedly, this is a very binary moment, and I don't know how it will play out. Maybe we get these new COVID outbreaks under control and the economy keeps recovering like there's no tomorrow. Maybe all these new cases in the Sun Belt stop the America Awakens theme that is working so well right in its tracks. Maybe the stimulus is allowed to expire in a month and the economy takes a beating. Maybe Congress passes another rescue package and we're fine. The truth is, we just don't know. How about a vaccine? Maybe not a vaccine. So what if we forget about the long term for a second and zoom in on the short term? In the last few months, as I said at the top, we've seen a massive influx of new traders, many of them first timers who were lured in by commission free trades and low stock prices. And they love it. Now, I don't normally recommend trades on the show. It's not my style. Most people don't have the time to manage their money that actively. And I think you're less likely to get burned making long-term good bets on high-quality companies, particularly ones that have dividends. But right now, there are a ton of novice traders out there, and its they don't want that. Uh, and i got to help them, okay? I'm not going to thumb my nose at them. And if you're going to be trading anyway, I want you to do it skillfully, not blindly follow anyone. And that's why tonight... We we're going to go off the charts, a special, one, special edition, with the help of Larry Williams, a legendary technician who's been trading futures commodities and stocks since I was a kid. Williams has written more than a dozen books. He's got his own website. It's called IReallyTrade.com. He's created a slew of technical indicators. We use a lot of them all the time, and he's got a phenomenal track record. Now, remember, when we checked in with Williams near the end of April, he told us to stop worrying about the pandemic, start betting on a massive rebound in the stock market. Oh, man, was it a bold call at the time? And from a financial perspective, he absolutely nailed it. When Williams told us we'd be able to reopen the economy in mid-May. It flew in the face of all the negative conventional wisdom, turned out to be dead right. Now he's probably too optimistic about COVID itself, given that the cases are surging again. But Williams is a money guy, not an epidemiologist. And in terms of helping you make money, it's still one of the best calls I've ever seen. The increase in cases didn't correlate with the market anyway. Now Williams has another idea, and it's a short-term Fourth of July trade. Again, we don't normally traffic in this stuff. I make that caveat because I don't want people to think it's a trade and show. But Trading is making a comeback, and i got to be sure that you're going to be rational and disciplined if you're going to do it. This is something Williams first heard about way back in 1966 from his friend Arthur Merrill, who wrote about the 4th of July trade in his book, Behavior of Prices on Wall Street. Merrill pointed out that from 1897 to 1965, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 81% of the time on the trading day before the July 4th holiday. 81%. Williams has been using this one ever since. Hey, with one added twist— and it's been among the most consistent short-term trades in its entire arsenal. So take a look at this daily chart of the S&P 500 e-mini futures. It's going back to early May, okay? The blue line is the seasonal pattern, the way the S&P tends to trade at this time of year historically. You can see that from late June through the first weeks of July, you usually get a substantial seasonal rally. I know we've already had a rally, but, you know, bear with me. So do you just put some money in an index fund for the next month? Not so fast. This is where discipline comes in. If you really want to trade, You have to go into it with more than just an idea. You need a well-defined entry point and a well-defined exit point no matter what. That's why Williams looked at the action over the last 21 years to find the best moment to start this 4th of July trade using the S&P 500. Crucially, and I want you to understand this. He used what's known as a $2,000 stop loss order, meaning the broker would automatically sell if we got a sizable decline. And he sold it into, into the first profitable opening after the second day in the trade. Younger people listen up. That's the kind of discipline you need as a trader. You, you get in and when the trade's over, you get right back out. So what's Williams found over the last 21 years? OK, if you bought the S&P six days before July 4th, uh, it worked 57 percent of the time. Uh, you know, on average you lost money. If you bought five days before, the trade worked 66% of the time. Those gains weren't enough to offset the losses from the other third. The average is still down. However, if you bought four days before, the trade worked 80% of the time. And on average, you have a nice profit. If you bought three days before, look at this, 85. And you had a sizable profit. But over the last 21 years, the best odds came from buying the last two days before July 4th holiday. Now, that worked out. To be an astounding 90 percent, 5 percent of the time uh, and average, it also gave you the biggest gain. So what you want to do, write this down, you new guys, Look, you can go buy the shipping stocks. Or you can listen to Larry Williams. So, if you want a short-term trade with a terrific record, Williams says you should buy the S and P two days before July fourth. Now, just remember to use a stop-loss. order, who knows? Maybe you know Navarro comes out and says the president doesn't know what he's doing, and the president reverses and says Navarro's right, and, and we're going to you know, get China wherever we can, and then it doesn't matter. But Williams likes to let this run for two days and then sell into the first profitable opening. There are ways we can make this more complicated, generate more upside, but I don't want to start throwing option strategies at you. This is about catalyst and discipline. But most traders don't understand that you must need and have. Bottom line, most of you shouldn't trade. You should only invest for the long term. But if you're going to trade anyway, and I know you're going to, I think this Fourth of July trade from the Iowa Williams makes a lot of sense as long as you're disciplined about it. Look at that gain. Adam in New York. Adam. Hey, Jim. How's it going? Not bad, Adam. How about you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Thank you so much for squeezing me in. Big fan.
4: Excellent. So, Jim, I have a question about Simulation Plus, SLP. Uh, they hit an all-time high last week, SLP, and I, I wanted to know from you is, can SLP sustain this level of growth post-COVID?
3: The automation software cloud game is very, very, very fierce. Competition is stiff. Do you think they can keep growing past COVID? With all you the know what? I think they can. I think they've been recognized as someone. And I like this, the drug research for, uh, a business. And it's only a billion-dollar company. Now, look, obviously, these things can go down. But, no, I, don't, I think you're fine. I don't think that the end of COVID, which may not end that quickly, is going to hurt these guys. Let's go to Mateen in Tennessee. Mateen! Jim, how are you, my man? Oh, I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm great. great. First of all, I'd like
6: to give a shout out to Michael and Mustafa. Absolutely. Secondly, Fastly, hit our FSLY Parabolic increases recently. Yeah, but I you saw, saw the reversal for- at the end of the
3: day? The reversal at the end of the day was key for Fastly. The stock was going up. It had a really big move. It hit 81 and then went back to 75. That's a classic sell signal for a stock that I really like. So be aware, that reversal is not a good sign. Great company, though. All right. I don't usually recommend trades, but if you're going to do it, I want you to think about this Fourth of July trade. I think it makes sense. If you're disciplined only, if you're not disciplined, go buy a shipping stock or an airline. Knock yourself out with a cruiser. All right, much more mad money ahead. COVID-19 pandemic has taken a toll on retailers, including a $9 stock called Land's End. But is it the end of the road for the iconic brand? Or after today's move higher, could it be signaling the beginning of a turn? I've got the CEO. Plus, the fake beat battle, don't you love that? It's a little condescending. Is heating up. Impossible Foods just landed it just landed a landmark deal, and it earned itself a spot on CNBC's Disruptor 50. Don't miss my sit down with the CEO. And Oya calls rapid fire tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. When COVID first hit and the market collapsed, the whole retail and apparel edifice got crushed. Many of them deserved to get hammered. Hard to make money when the government forces your stores to close. However, the sell-off was totally indiscriminate. It's created some opportunities. Take Land's End, the small apparel company, and it is small, formerly known for its catalogs. It's now primarily an e-commerce place. They use 96 percent of their business online. Before the pandemic, these guys were experimenting with new digital sales tools. But then the virus swept through the country and Land's End plummeted from the low teens to $4 at the bottom. They only have a handful of stores. Of course, the stock's made a phenomenal comeback, climbing to more than $9 as of today. But it's still down nearly 50 percent for the year. Now, Landsend isn't in great shape. Not a ton of demand for clothes during lockdown. And when they reported earlier this month, results came in a bit light, though the guidance was encouraging. Plus, last week, the company got hit with a credit down rating. Oh boy. A rating downgrade to triple C. It's not the best balance sheet. Big slug of debt. 384 million. Coming due next April. Ouch. But as an e-commerce play, could this thing be worth learning about? Let's check in with Jerome Griffith. He's the president and CEO of Landsend to get a better sense of how his company's doing, where it's headed. Mr. Griffith, welcome to Mad Money.
6: Hi, right, Jim.
3: How you doing? I'm doing well, Mr. Griffith. And let me just tell you, uh, I was talking to my executive producer, uh, Regina Gilgan and I. We are huge customers. OK, we're huge customers. My wife puts her initials on everything. And that's why she goes to land's end. And a lot of times we think, frankly, and, you know, I know your chairperson uh, from a long time for for many, many years. Josephine Linden and, and John McClain is a great friend of mine is also on your board. I'm always trying to. I mean, I've asked John a million times, why isn't this a bigger company? Why do you think it's been held back?
6: Quite honestly, one of the things that people don't realize about us is we're one of the top five largest single brand websites in America. The company has been an e commerce player since the beginning. We're the first company to sell clothing online. Of course, during the early 2000s, when the company was purchased by Sears, while it was Played up as a big story. There actually wasn't a lot of synergy with the Sears customer, so it didn't help the company's performance overall. When it got spun off in 2014, it had a couple of uh, fits and starts with management. But since 2017, when uh, the new management group has taken over, we've actually grown top line while getting rid of all of our Sears sales and at the same time been growing the bottom line even to end that profit.
3: Now, are you able to to, uh, assure us that you've got something uh, in the works to be able to at least refinance or, or spread the uh, the debt from April, because the triple C downgrade, a lot of our investors, remember, are not stock. They're stock oriented. They don't understand the credit side. And the credit side here is not as good as I'd like.
6: It's going to happen. You know, you're going to get downgraded when when that term debt comes due within those 12 months. However, we're starting to see a pretty good market out there for us. And we're not we don't have sleepless nights now.
3: Oh, That's good to know. All right. Now, talk to me about this Kohl's deal. Uh, We like Kohl's, but I worry that it's down market and Land's End to me is up market. That's interesting that you say that. One of the things
6: that did not work for us with Sears was the customer. There wasn't a lot of customer synergy. Sears customer attributes were not the same as Land's End. And that's why we end up exiting that relationship. However, with Kohl's, that's a different story. The Kohl's customer has the same attributes as a Lands in customer. And with Kohl's, just in their loyalty program, we have access to over five times our total US database. So it's really getting the brand out in front of a lot of new potential customers. No, and when we gonna, went they have not done Amazon I'm sorry. Go when, ahead. When we went onto Amazon a couple of years ago, we were really testing could we go to other parts of distribution where our customer is shopping and they can also find Lands in. And what we found with Amazon is over fifty percent of the people that are buying us there I've never heard of Lands' End. Never shopped with them before. Twenty-seven percent of the people that are buying us there have not shopped Lands' End for between one and five years. So we're actually bringing in a new customer to grow the uh, the, the, the total understanding of what the brand is.
3: You talk about stores as customer service centers. And you're actually Absolutely. adding brick and mortar. All right. So I'll play the devil's advocate. Why do you add brick and mortar in Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and go up another eight, uh, Illinois, Delaware, Virginia when the world's going digital? I, that, let's just be clear. Less than 5% of
6: our sales are from brick and mortar stores. So it's a service to our customer. There are lots of customers out there that yes, they're loving to buy online and you're seeing a huge increase in shopping online right now, absolutely. However, some customers will still want to interact with the brand in a physical location. And that was the impetus on these stores. Having said that, we've stopped opening opening new stores going into 2021. We're gonna take a pause and see what happens with customer traffic in brick and mortar before we would go back there. Where we're taking our money right now is we're putting our money in tech. Tech is working for us. The increase of speed, increase of ease for the customers, increase of payment options are things that we're working on right now in order to improve the uh, usability of our website.
3: Now, when I go to your website, uh, I know you said business is strong. I want to hear more about that because you were running some very large sales. That's a lot of 60 percent sales this, this morning and afternoon. Um, is that just the is that clearance or is that because uh, you guys are uh, can be bargains? Let me explain this to you. Our company was founded on quality,
6: value, and service. Now, one of the things that's been negative with the retail industry in the last 10 years is that people have been buying the business back with promotions. And it's been detrimental to most of the people in the apparel retail space. What's happened is their EBITDAs have gone from mid-teens to -to mid-to-high single digits. Not really great for the business. I think what's going to happen now is people that are not embracing e-commerce and embracing technology are going to end up falling out and it's gonna make companies like in much stronger. And if you look on the website, you'll see up to 60%. That's not everything at 60%. What's important for us is growing our gross margin. And with artificial intelligence and a program that we're calling Dynamic Promotion, we've been able to show that you can increase your gross margins at the same time as offering good deals on products that either aren't selling well or that customers would like to get, but at a slightly higher discount. So we're really doing two things at once. We're using technology to manage what the customer is seeing
3: and to manage increasing our prices. One last question. When I look at what you're doing, I think of what Nike said they were going to do two years ago. We are going to make it so that it's digital and therefore personal. It got their price earnings multiple up about four turns. You guys can be the most personal apparel maker. How much more personal digitized can you get?
6: This is the time for us. I will tell you, going into 2020, we really thought this was going to be our year. We finished 2019 really strong, started out February strong, and then the pandemic hit. I think we're doubling down on everything that we do really well. You mentioned earlier that you and your wife were buying products with initials on them. That's a big part of the business for us and really personalizing the product for the consumer. But another way that you look at personalization is what you're seeing when you get onto the website. Through artificial intelligence, again, we're giving customers, based upon their shopping history and what they're clicking on during that
3: shopping experience, a different look that's personalized just towards them. Excellent. All right. Well, look, it's just a delight to have you on, sir. I've always wanted to meet you. I have to do it this way. That's fine. Jerome Griffith, President and CEO of Lands and LE. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, sir. All right, so Mayor Money's back after the break, but wait a second. My friend Scott Wapner, whose show I am on tomorrow, has a dynamite show lined up tonight.
1: Tonight at 7 p.m., are schools really ready to reopen this fall? Plus, are you ready to travel yet? One travel advisor gives insight on where activity is picking up. And what's next for tennis after the sport's top star test positive? All tonight at 7 p.m. with Scott Wapner.
3: It is time! It's time for the light round! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? Dad, it's time for the light round case. We're in so with Jim in Washington. Jim! Hey, Jim! Yo, yo! How's it going with you? A cool point, thank you. How about you? All right. Um, do you think Taiwan Semiconductor is a good stock? I think I Taiwan Semiconductor ship? is not a good stock. I think it is a great stock. Uh, and, and I can't believe how little it's talked about here. That's how good it is. I'm 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 going to try to bring it back. How about Todd in Texas? Todd.
4: Greetings. Barrister. Grace. Counselor. Yes. Todd, Todd from Texas. We spoke last summer. You may remember. My son, uh, Rowan, was on the transplant list. He had a rare, rare liver disease oh, called biliary yes. He's doing great. He was oh, God, that's oct- good
3: news. That is good news. Yeah.
4: October 4, 2019, down the, down the road at UPMC Children's in Pittsburgh. They got a great team there. Great if you ever get a chance hospital. to broadcast from there, it'll Absolutely. change your life. I know. But he's doing great. Happy little warrior. That's good. Listen, we support transplants for all you in do.
3: Columbia. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Thank you for all you do.
4: Uh, for for our family and for so many families in this country with uh, with your uh, care with That's your what we'll be care about. you know that, Thank you. So my stock uh, is it, in. Seago. They closed about ten forty eight today. A 5G a company that I
3: kind of really like. I liked it. I went down a couple bucks after I said, I like it. i'm not I'm not running for the hills. I'm sticking by it. All righty? And good that you caught. Let's go to Leslie in California, Leslie.
4: Booyah, Jim. Booyah. It's Leslie from San Francisco. Thank you for taking my call. Okay. Um, I built a small position in a dentist. Yeah, that's, it's
3: Carol Arm and it's not doing anything. Uh, It's just not doing anything. You know, to me, it bothers me. It bothers me. It's a momentum play. It's not doing anything. So it has no, you know, I'd like to see some really big news from there. Let's go to Dino in Indiana. Dino. Hey Jim,
4: thanks for taking my call. Sure, do my you know My question I have for you is: Eldorado Gaming, a symbol E R I.
3: No one has asked me about Eldorado Dorado Gaming. Um, I'm going to send you the one that I know that people are tired of hearing about. But I'm not. Con- I'm consistent. I'm, I'm saying Penn Nat is right. And I liked it at thirty. I liked it at twenty. I liked it at tail twelve. I liked it at a. I liked it at 30. I liked it. Penn Nat. Let's go to Felice. Felice in Connecticut. Felice.
4: Booyah.
3: Booyah, Felice. Mr.
4: Kramer, I'm interested in the stock AstraZeneca.
3: You know, if you had asked me five years ago about AstraZeneca, I would have said next. But they have really gotten their act together. I wish they'd come on air. That is one well-run company out was some great franchises. I am saying ah! two thumbs up. AstraZeneca. Craig in Illinois. Craig. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Halliburton. Well, I saw in the previous show, my favorite with Bissy Lee, that Halliburton was being faded by one of the traders there. And I'm going to join him. Fade, which means that's, that's a genuine Wall Street gibberish word for... Sell, 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 sell. How about Rich in New Jersey? Rich. Jim, big North Jersey foo for you. Bear country. What's going on? What's going on, man? Hey, listen. Your boy, Portnoy, has helped me make some great gains over the last few weeks. And I got a question. Yeah. I'm thinking about moving the profits into Alaska Airlines for a long-term play. What are your thoughts? It is a very well-run airline. Um, You know, if you're going to buy an airline, it's well-run. I always default to Southwest because it's it's best run and because it's Gary Kelly. And it's a thirty-four dollar stock. and I don't know whether uh, the Gospel According to Portnoy likes it, but I've done like you know maybe like twenty-five years' work on Southwest. I know that's a lot of time, maybe wasted. But I think that Gary Kelly is the best. And I'm sorry I put in so much time and so much work and read so many things because it sure would be better to just say I like Southwest. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round. The
1: lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. love John Denver. Really?
3: David? Yeah. Thank God I'm a country boy. Nice. I mean, David. Mountain mama? Uh, Who the hell are you? You annoy me.
1: It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern.
3: With so many COVID outbreaks at these meat processing plants, this pandemic's created some incredible opportunities for the plant-based meat alternative business. Now we all know about Beyond Meat, had them on a bunch of times, but there's another major player in the space that privately held impossible foods, which is number 49 on CMC's Disruptor 50 list. Hmm, that's low. You might recognize them from the Impossible Whopper at Burger King or the Impossible Stand at what used to be baseball's place in San Francisco. The key differentiation here, Impossible's ersatz meat is genetically engineered, which frankly I think is why it tastes better. Although I know some people balk at eating GMO foods. It clearly doesn't bother Starbucks, though. Just today they announced the Impossible breakfast sandwich as part of their new summer menu. This is only the latest move from a company that's been moving aggressively to boost production and expand its distribution. Last month they started selling their products in Kroger. I think these plant-based meats are the future, but don't take it from me. Let's dig deeper with Dr. Pat Brown. Yeah, he's a real physician. The founder and CEO of Impossible Foods, learn more about this phenomenal growth story. Uh, Dr. Brown, welcome to Mad Money.
7: Thanks, Jim. I'm happy to be here. You look
3: even better than in the commercial. I love this. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so. I want to try to put things in perspective. I thought the Kroger deal, I happen to be very uh, good friends with the people at Kroger, was gigantic. But I imagine that a deal with Starbucks for a breakfast sandwich can be even bigger than Kroger. Can you explain which is going to help your margins better and which is going to help your bottom line?
7: Well, I, I, it's 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 way too early to say because, of course, we're just a few hours into the Starbucks launch. So um, that's not exactly how I look at it, but I would say uh, – it's huge for us. It's by far the, the um, in terms of the, the number of outlets, by far the biggest launch we've had. Uh, and of course, the opportunity to, to partner with an iconic global brand like Starbucks um, uh, is probably equally important uh, in just raising uh, awareness and interest and trial uh, in consumers.
3: Now, uh, do you think that, given the fact that Your competitor, Beyond Meat, has a close relationship with Dunkin'. This was pretty much an obvious choice for Impossible to get the deal?
7: Well, we've been talking with Starbucks for a while. And uh, um, so basically anyone who uh, is um, selling to any consumer who would otherwise be buying meat is an obvious choice for Impossible Foods. Um, But uh, we really, uh, uh, Starbucks was one of our, if not the uh, top um, target outlet, just because of the the power of their brand and their uh, ubiquity, and also um, the uh, uh, you know in the uh, 18 to 29 year old uh, age group, um, more than a third of uh, that population in the U.S. goes to a Starbucks uh, every month. So. Um, You know, it's just it's just a great opportunity
3: for uh, exposure and trial. I haven't been able to get hold of Kevin Johnson today, but uh, as a longtime uh, follower uh, of Howard Schultz's positions, he's the founder. uh, He always told me, listen, what matters to him is what tastes best. So I was initially surprised that Starbucks would go with someone who who has GMOs in them. But that has not been the way. Are you concerned that others We'll find that GMOs, once uh, you're know, really the bellywick of Impossible, uh, are, uh, let's say, found out about, that it'll hurt your business.:
7: Oh, not at all. No. I mean, we, we've been completely transparent about the fact that we use genetically engineered yeast to produce the ingredient uh, that is basically the magic molecule that makes meat taste like meat, and It's what makes our products uh, taste unlike any other plant-based products. On the planet. We've 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 been completely open about that forever. And uh, we're proud of it. And frankly, I think that, uh, you know, I talk to consumers about this all the time. And I think as soon as they really understand what it is and why we made that choice, it's just a total non-issue.
3: Well, I have to tell you, look, I've I've had your burgers and I think that they are fantastic and I can't tell mm-hmm. the difference. And I do like to taste more than meat, candidly. And I figured it's got to be something. And I'm sure it's the GMO. I'm not as important. This is not as important an issue for me as it is for others. I care about the taste and I care about the ingredients. Talk about how plant based is a superior way to get all of your nutrition than it is to get it from a cow.
7: Well, from a nutritional standpoint, um, our products match the um, protein quality and content of the animal products that they replace. They have no cholesterol. They have lower saturated fat, lower calories, um, and uh, the same iron content, bioavailable iron content. Um, And uh, so, you know, if you're comparing um, our product to the animal based product that it replaces, I think uh, ours is a clear winner uh, from a health nutrition standpoint. Um, And frankly, I think uh, as many people, uh, like you say, uh, from a taste and deliciousness standpoint as well, Um, You know, this is why um, I I think people are increasingly aware plant-based products are going to completely replace the animal-based products uh, in the food world within the next 15 years. That's our mission. Uh, That transformation is inevitable. And actually, one of the counterintuitive things about it is, you know, the pig and the cow are not working on getting more delicious. Right. Impossible Foods is working every day, working hard every day to make our, plant, our our products more delicious all the time. And we have the ability to do that because, um, you know, the cow was never engineered to be delicious. Um, we, get to, we get to optimize and optimize and optimize, get feedback from consumers, figure out what to change to make it better, healthier, more delicious, more affordable. Um, it's inevitable.
3: Yeah, I agree with you. I also think it's, It it is a necessity, given the fact of what can happen to our planet. It's a necessity. Now, one last thing I need to ask you about. Uh, I've been going back and forth with a major food company that uh, the Chinese have decided not to take their product uh, in a particular plant um, because in Arkansas, because so many workers had COVID. Have you had any problems with COVID at any of your facilities? Uh,
7: Fingers crossed. None of none of our own facilities, none of our own employees. Uh, have acquired the infection i i i 'm not saying it's not going to happen because you know we, we there's a limit to how well we control it but um I think if you looked at our facilities as compared to a meat uh a slaughterhouse basically um there's absolutely no comparison um it's extremely clean first of all we don't have animals covered with their own feces walking into the place and and uh we're able to keep our workers um wearing. Protective equipment, effectively social distance. We have a much lower density of workers. Most of the processes are highly automated, and the and the workers are basically not doing just brutal manual work, cutting animals to bits, but just operating uh, uh, equipment that does the real work. So, um, I, I think the, the inherent risk is vastly lower. But of course, there's always some risk. I mean, you know. At, any, yes. at any, any day I could show up with the infection, hopefully And I, not. I have
3: to imagine at Kroger, they're thrilled to have you because of the meat shortage. There is a meat shortage, and you guys have the, the ability to come through with it, I bet, with as much as they want.
7: Yeah, so, I mean, well, <laughs> you know, the demand is always going up, and right. we're really seriously racing to keep up with the demand. Um, uh, we're effectively selling everything we can produce, so... Incredible. Um, but, uh, yeah, but at least we haven't been taken down by
3: COVID. I think that's what's – look, in, in this world, I'm telling you, that is the most important thing right now at this moment. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, CEO of Impossible Foods, one great taste in burger, by the way. Stick with Kramer. Pretty a great appearance the other day, CEO of Sanjay Poonen of VMware, and he really told a very good story. Well, you know what? stock is up 16 on a restructuring with dell that's what you want i like to say there's always more market summer. Problems i find it just for you right here on mad money i'm jim craver and i will see you tomorrow
2: this podcast is supported by fedex dear small and medium businesses no one wants happy customers more than you do that's why fedex offers you picture proof of delivery